The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. In today's enlightening discussion, Charlotte Ecker-Wiggins takes us on a journey through the fascinating intersection of beekeeping and gardening. She breaks down the perceived barriers between these two practices and highlights their inherent connections. Get ready to explore the importance of pollinators and the balance required to nurture their environment. We'll delve into the secrets of Bluebird Gardens, a place Charlotte fondly describes as a hub for murder, mayhem, and mysteries, where diverse creatures and plants coexist in harmony. Charlotte emphasizes the need for beekeepers to understand the intricacies of plant life and for gardeners to grasp the fundamentals of pollination. Charlotte is a certified master beekeeper and a master gardener emeritus. She has turned a seemingly barren Missouri hillside into an award-winning haven for both bees and blooms. Her garden, aptly named Bluebird Gardens, not only thrives against all odds, but has also transformed into a certified wildlife habitat and a monarch way station. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. Charlotte is also an author and runs a custom gift business inspired by her sustainable practices. Charlotte shares insights into the captivating swarming process in honeybee colonies and unveils potential educational resources for aspiring beekeepers. This is episode 147, Resolving the Beekeepers and Gardener's Dilemma with Charlotte Ecker-Wiggins. Charlotte, why do you believe there is a divide between beekeeping and gardening? I didn't think there was until I started talking to horticulture specialists who I was working with and beekeepers. Beekeepers would say to me, why do I need to know about plants? I'm a beekeeper. I would talk to some of the gardeners and say, what are you doing for pollinators? No, I'm just specializing in plants. Anecdotally, in my research and my participation in things like the Missouri Master Pollinator Steward Program, working with Missourians for Monarchs, and just general discussions with some of these specialists, they didn't want to know about anything outside of their siloed topic. I now call myself a garden keeper. I'm a gardener beekeeper because I'm trying to bring those two specialties together. Gardeners do need to know about pollinators and how they develop homes for these pollinators in their garden. Beekeepers need to know about pollinators. They need to know about native bees. They need to know about the plants that are going to feed their bees. I'm sure there are other people out there in that same message, but in my little world, I'm trying to get that message across as well. Do you believe in a peaceful garden? Oh, heavens no. I know you were talking earlier with me about how to describe my garden. And I describe my garden as mayhem, murder, and mysteries. 
if I sit out on my front porch and look at my garden in the springtime, I usually know that it's nice and busy when I hear the birds chirping outside. I want to see bugs on plants. I want to see birds picking a caterpillar up and taking it back to its nest. People will always describe, oh, your garden is so peaceful. Oh, your garden is lovely. Lovely is fine, but the peacefulness, if you know your garden, it's not peaceful. There's a lot going on, and there should be, because our gardens are actually the homes of some of these creatures, the insects and the birds and the snakes and the possums. I have a possum right now. I call her Lilibeth. She's been in my garden for several years. She had moved into my beekeeping equipment shed. I didn't want her there. Then she moved into the garage this fall. I would have to trap her. I know her pretty well. I've taken her down to a new spot. She eats snakes. She takes care of ticks. She doesn't carry rabies. One of the construction guys who's here doing the siding on my house volunteered to shoot her for me. I said, don't you dare touch that poor possum. She's part of the ecosystem. And no, I don't believe in the peaceful garden concept at all. Should honeybees be a main focus for gardeners? They can be. We joke with public land agencies who like to tell us that native bees are the ones going to be in public land agencies and honeybees will be in agricultural or backyards. Who's putting up the signs that say they're not welcome? The issue with both honeybees and native bees is that they're competing for similar resources. They're attracted to different kinds of plants in general, but if they're really desperate, they're going to go eat what a honeybee would like to have, or a honeybee will go and access some of the food that the native bees need. The challenge with the native bees is they only are around for a very short time. They're better pollinators, but they may be around for a shorter time, whereas the honeybee is around all year. If you have a garden that you're developing that you think is only going to support honeybees, we're not in control. So if you plant flowers, you're going to have more than just honeybees. You're going to have butterflies, and you're going to have ants and maybe flies, hopefully native bees as well. So I don't believe in that concept so much, but I do believe in planting. I found out an interesting figure recently. When you're talking about how many flowers bees need in general, the native bees need a few less than honeybees because they hibernate. They're not consuming anything. Honeybees do hibernate inside their hives over winter, so they collect the honey and store it so they have food to eat over winter. In general, it takes 2 million flowers to make one pound of honey. This is a jar you'd buy at a grocery store. How much do you think a colony of bees would need in a year's time? 50,000 bees in a hive. I was at a St. Louis beekeepers meeting last night, and they guessed 100 Somebody else guessed 200, 700 pounds of honey is what a colony needs to get through a year. That's 1 billion, 400 million flowers. I can't even get around the number of zeros that is. But that just tells me to tell people, keep planting. We're losing. We've got monoculture crops now. We're losing a lot of our micro areas or native areas, natural areas, because we're over developing land because we want housing or we want commercial development. All of those things are disappearing because we're not protecting them in general. Plant natives, because if you're not a gardener, the native plants are going to be more successful at where you are. They know the soil. They know the climate conditions. They've already had an established relationship with the native pollinators. Your chances of being successful in giving 
food for your pollinators is higher by planting natives, in addition to all the other benefits. When you start planting exotics, non-native plants, you need to have a higher level of expertise to successfully do that. You may or may not be adding something pollinators that are local to your area can use. I joke about being a lazy gardener. I'm not, but what I'm saying, there are easier ways to do things than imposing what we want on a piece of land. I listen to my garden, if that makes any sense. I watch what's happening in my garden. When I first moved in here in 1982 and we built this house, my husband at the time wanted to plant grass. He wanted that turf grass green look. And he wanted crab apples for some reason. We tried to plant both of those and were not successful at it at all. I started noticing that we have eastern red buds growing like weeds. I started training the red bud to growing where the crab apples wouldn't. I think we need to listen and watch what's happening in our garden. We're in a drought here in Missouri. I'm losing those redbud trees that I helped stake 40 years ago. I'm now rethinking what's going to be there. I'm watching to see if they're going to regenerate because I've been watering them. You have to listen to watch the ecosystem. There are some plants that you know are natives, like dogwoods. Flowering dogwoods are the state tree of Missouri. Eastern redbuds cover that whole north continent as a native plant, and focusing on those plants that you know have been here for a while, that you're willing to take a chance on them a lot better than going and buying a $100 plant at your local home garden center. It seems like we're operating on a broken connection in our gardening world. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, definitely. Think about how we spend our time in general. We don't have kids going out and playing ball in our gardens anymore. They're sitting at a computer playing games. If I do one thing in my career as a blogger, as an author, as a beekeeper, as a gardener, is to reconnect us to our gardens. Often people say, what's success to you? How how many books do you want to sell? How much money do you want to make? Success to me is when I get that email from somebody I don't know who said, because of something I read on your blog, I went out and adopted Henry. He's my new tomato plant. I've got him on my apartment sill in New York, and I'm going to try to grow my own tomatoes. That, to me, is success because all of a sudden, that person now is connecting, right? They're connecting to something that's outside of their comfort zone, something they're going to care for. Yes, if they're lucky, they will get tomatoes if they bought the little micro tomato plant. But more importantly, they're starting to think about living green things. When that happens, I think it tends to, I joke about giving people zinnia seeds as well. I call those the gateway plants, right? Once you have that that zinnia, because they're so easy to grow. They grow in any soil, and they're beautiful. They're colorful, and the pollinators love them. And you see a butterfly coming onto it as any a skipper or a painted lady, you get hooked on wanting to plant something else that's going to keep those butterflies happy or in your garden. So that's what I think we need to get back to. We need to be back to connecting people. I know there are lots of plants out there that you can buy. This is the year of the African violet, for example. It's hard to find those because they fell out of favor. But there's another plant. They're not certainly native plants, but... It's a plant that you can put in an apartment, a plant you can put in a small space and remind people the beauty of nature. 
if they're not going outside, they can only see it inside. But we definitely need to reconnect. How are birds playing a part in the connection to a healthy bee population and, a, and the garden? One of the big issues we have in beekeeping, whether it's native bees or honeybees, is the overuse of pesticides. Yes, gardeners do tend to overuse them as well, but beekeepers do too. We tend to default to that chemical that's going to get rid of varroa mites. Varroa mites are like a tick that attaches itself to a bee. It's an invasive species, and they remove the fat body, called, which is the bee's equivalent of a liver, and they leave the bee without any immune system. Within 18 months of you having varroa taking over inside the hive, your colony will die. So beekeepers will use their number of techniques that they can use to control the varroa levels, but they'll also turn to chemicals. If they're not monitoring, they'll just apply the chemicals and really not know if the chemical is being effective inside the hives or not. The whole idea of pesticides, right, an easy solution to a pest problem means that as gardeners do as well, we overuse those. We know we don't read the directions, right? You've got that little paper wasp in the corner of your deck. You get that can of wasp remover. You shoot it at that paper wasp nest to get rid of it. You, of course, miss most of the time. And you've spread those chemicals throughout your garden that impact other things besides the paper wasp you want to remove. Birds are the natural pest control. I have, I think, 45 bird feeders in my garden. Some of them host bumblebees. Some of them have lizards and frogs. But in most of the cases, I have birds there. The birds help with pest control. 60% of all bird species need insects for baby food, right? So they help keep the caterpillar and unwanted bug population down. I encourage them in my garden. They're beautiful to have, but they also serve a purpose in keeping the garden in balance. That's the other thing that I find interesting. We as gardeners want perfection in our garden, right? We're always wanting to have that bush perfectly manicured or that plant in perfect shape. We don't want the plants that are going to expand on their own. And that's not nature. Nature wants balance. They want balance in the, if you let nature design a garden, it's interesting because I've, I've done that in parts of my garden. I've just let things grow and I've watched what they are, removed the invasives and just observed how nature has developed things. I go to my garden for color combinations. I'm a quilt designer. If I'm stuck with a custom quilt I'm doing, I go out in my garden or look at garden pictures because nature knows the right combinations of things. Designing quilts is you have to get the colors right. You can be a wonderful technician and, and do a lovely job of piecing it, but the colors need to be right. If we can let go, right? We, we have to just get, get it in our mind that we're not in charge. We're part of this garden. We're not in charge of the garden, I think we'll become better attuned to what can happen in our garden and be more successful, actually. You often hear it said, and I've often said it myself, put the right plant in the right location. Yes. What does that mean to you? That means to get to know the plant really well, understand the needs of the plant, then provide that. I know some people say you do need to have the right sun, shade, moisture levels that the plant needs, but I think to me is soil. 
I think that's probably the part of gardening that we don't spend a lot of time on. For me, is the most fascinating part of combining the needs of the plant and where I plant them. Maybe it's because I don't have a lot of soil. I'm gardening on a limestone hillside. Keeping the weather, what soil I do have healthy is critical for anything that I can grow. And then I also grow things that don't need soil. I have a ragweed growing in parts of my garden and people look at that and they say, well, that's a weed. Ragweed is actually improving the condition of the soil. Once the soil is improved, it won't grow there anymore. So I'm just going to let it do its thing because actually it has provides pollen as well. As we know who have allergies, it's a great pollen source in the fall for bees. So why am I taking a plant that's doing some of my work for me? Let's expand on that a little bit. How is that ragweed helping your soul? I forget where I picked that up. I read a lot of books. And I think maybe it was the soil instructor in the Master Gardener class that I took in 2010 who was talking about the connection between soil and plants. He mentioned that if you have an understanding of what's going on in your garden, if you're watching, where the plants are growing will tell you what kind of soil you have. We think about taking your soil down to the extension office and getting a soil sample. That's certainly a very effective tool to measure the quality of your soil, what kind of soil you have. But he was saying that if you observe where nature's planting things, that will also tell you what kind of soil you have. He mentioned ragweed. I started looking. First, I wanted to identify what ragweed looks like in my own garden. Then I forget where I read that ragweed actually conditions where it's growing. It grows in very poor soil. The growth of that plant in that particular area will help improve the soil. And then it improves the soil, but then it doesn't grow anymore once it has the soil improved. So it's starting with a very low baseline, but it's contributing to the health and betterment of the soil. I don't remember how it does that. I just remember reading that and saying to myself, oh, I have this lovely patch of ragweed over here. I'm just going to leave it. It's going to help with the plants. I don't know why I would fight it. So that's nature repairing itself, I would think. Yeah. And I think we like to think of ourselves as being in charge, but we're not. I have friends who have these perfectly manicured traditional gardens with a, one cone flower and one black-eyed Susan and one New England aster, perfectly trimmed and mulch, which is lovely. I love the mulch part of it. But you don't see a lot of butterflies or bees necessarily on those. Because for bees, especially honeybees, at least a four-by-four four swath of color so that they can see it. They don't have very good eyesight. And they could pick up the pheromones that the plants may put out to, to locate the nectar and that pollen source. They might have some butterflies on them, but it looks so artificial to me. Even formal gardens. I love formal gardens, but I love the formal gardens where it's more of a sea, right? One plant kind of merges into the next plant versus them being stuck individually. Certainly appreciated as a single plant, but there needs to be more movement in the garden layout. I'm not a landscaper at all. I just know what I've picked up from nature. Should every gardener be a beekeeper? They are without knowing it, actually. If you think about the native bees, if they are planting shrubs with flowers, trees with flowers, they are they are an unintentional beekeeper because what they're doing is they're putting a smorgasbord out. The native bees will find them. 
The challenge with the native bees is that some of them are very particular to a plant. There's a little bee out in Maine that only pollinates, in other words, it collects its food, its nectar and pollen, for a particular blueberry bush. And if those native blueberry bushes disappear, the bee will disappear. Honeybees are more generalist. They like the buffet style. They probably will be the more common bees seen in some gardens than maybe the native bees, unfortunately. Gardeners are definitely putting out food for bees. Should every beekeeper be a gardener? Absolutely. I've written a beginning beekeeping book that I would have liked to have had when I started keeping bees in 2010. They're lovely books out on the market, but I never could find a book that would help guide me in all the decisions I had to make as a beginning beekeeper. I'm a list maker, and so my book is a workbook as well as a guide of the things that you need to consider when you're starting to keep bees. I started the book with, I call it a chapter on feeding bees naturally, and it's a gardening section. It talks about what kind of soil you have and understand what kind of plants you have in your garden. Actually, you need to know what plants are within a two-mile radius of where you're going to put your hive because the bees will fly on a normal day two miles from their hive. On a stress day, they'll fly five miles, right? They can't make it back on the same day, but they'll hunker down for the evening and then fly back. They're looking for food. You need to know. I'd be able to identify the trees, shrubs, and flowers blooming in your garden, and then you need to keep adding them. If one colony needs 700 pounds of food in a year, that's a ton of flowers that you need to have. I also say you need 25 different blooming plants at the same time, transitioning from April to October. Where I live, we have winter. That's a lot of plants. A beekeeper does have to know about flowers. Kim Plottom was the editor of the Bee Culture magazine. He just passed away recently. When he saw my book, he said, you're revolutionizing the way beekeeping is taught. Because I start out talking about plants. And I remember some of my bee friends around here when they saw, I lecture on planting for pollinators as well. We used to put that at the end of our classes. And of course, if we ran out of time, we would cut that out. I started changing that. I put that at the beginning of the class. And they had a fit. One of them said, I'm a beekeeper. I do not need to know about plants. I said, what do you think your bees eat? They're getting their food from your plants. So if you don't have plants, your bees are not going to be healthy and they can't sustain themselves. That's a very important part. Bee research now is catching up with that. Bees have pathogens and pests and pesticides. These are all things that challenge them. But just like we are, you think about COVID, those of us who were healthier were able to manage our way through COVID a little better than those that weren't. Same thing with bees. The healthier they are, the better they're going to be able to manage the viruses that Varroa carry. I mentioned Varroa earlier. Yes, it is a tick that takes the immune system out of the bees, but they also vector at least 48 diseases that they carry. And then, of course, the bee without an immune system picks up those diseases, and that's when the colony falls apart. The healthier the bees can be, the better they can fight off some of the challenges that they have. Nutrition is really important. We need 33 amino acids to be healthy as people. Bees need 11. Now think about that. They're one-sixtieth of our size 
and they need a third of the amino acids that we need to be healthy. So that to me says it's going to be more of a challenge to make sure bees are healthy. Just like us, they go after the sugar water. They don't necessarily eat the healthy stuff that's available to them. But they do know that they need, for example, they need the salt. They need salt. They can always get that in nature. So those of us who put bird baths out and have the twigs and the rocks so they can safely land on them will notice that the bees like that funky water that's been sitting there for a while versus the brand new clean water that we put out. They're looking for minerals that have been produced in that water. So they do know that they need to find things to supplement their own health. Luckily, we don't have to do that because I don't think it's possible for us to do it. The bees know. But we do need to provide them the smorgasbord where they can choose what they need, the kind of pollen that they bring back. If you've ever pulled a frame out of a hive and looked at the pollen colors, it's amazing. It looks like a kaleidoscope because the pollen that plants produce are not the same color. They don't have the same minerals in the pollen. The nectar is the same way. Spring nectar would look different than a fall nectar. They're more antioxidants in the darker fall nectar. And so the bees have this complicated menu that they look for. Uh, I think the best we can do is give them as many options as we can so they can pick what they need. If we were going to locate a hive in our garden, where would be the best place to position that hive? There's some guidelines. You want to face southeast. You want it in the sun because there's another invasive, the small hive beetle, looks like a little black ladybug, that also cohabitates with bees. They don't like light, and so having sun hitting the hive will help discourage small hive beetles. You also want to make sure that the hive is tilted a little bit, so if water comes in, it will come out. Cold doesn't kill bees, but moisture does. You don't want to have moisture inside your hive if you can help it. Then you want to make sure that there are plants growing at least 50 feet from where your hives are. The bees keep the hive very clean. They fly out to cleanse themselves, to defecate. They don't defecate inside the hive. They won't then forage on the plants that are immediately around the hive, right, because that's their bathroom. So you need to make sure that your plants are, oh, I say 50 feet away from the hive. I have, I'm looking at one of my hives out my window right now. I have flowers that are closer, but there are other things that come and visit the flowers as well. You want to have plants relatively close to where your hives are. The more variety you can have, just like in our meals, we want to have carbohydrates and proteins and leafy plant material in our diets as well. Same thing with bees. They need to have a lot of variety. One of the things that I like to recommend beekeepers plant, especially if they're starting their apiaries, is plant buckwheat. Buckwheat is bee coffee. Buckwheat, just like a lot of plants, only provide nectar and pollen a certain time at certain time of year, certain temperature range, 74 to 86 Fahrenheit. Buckwheat only provides the nectar for a short time in the morning. We've had people plant buckwheat and say to me, I've never seen my bees on there. I said, have you been out there at six o'clock in the morning to look? Because that's when the buckwheat is producing the nectar. The temperature has to be a certain range for the buckwheat plant to produce the nectar. That's when the bees will be on it. The minute they shut down, the bees go on and find another source of nectar. Do you ever have a problem with invaders like bears? 
I have not. We have just recently reintroduced bears into Missouri. Our Missouri Department of Conservation is doing a good job of monitoring them. We know they've been around here, but I've not had an issue with bears. I have had raccoons, and I've had a skunk. I didn't see the adult. The little baby skunk was caught in the corner of my beekeeping hive storage area. But you do watch for that. You look at the front of the hive, if there are any scratches, anything's been removed. There are other critters that want to get into the hive, so you have it strapped down. You do have to keep an eye on that. I've had vandalism. I've had a hive knocked over, and we saw human footprints around the hive. It is important to make sure that your hives are not impacting your neighbors. If you're in an area where you have neighbors close up, you want to place your hive so that the entrance is not encouraging bees to fly into the sidewalk that you share with your neighbors or into your neighbor's backyard. If you have neighbors that have swimming pools, boy, come August when there's nothing in nature providing nectar pollen. We're in that dearth of the heat that you have in the summertime. The calls start coming in about bees raiding hummingbird feeders and visiting swimming pools. If you train your bees to bird baths in your yard early in the season, that's what they're looking for. You're letting them have the bouquet of rainwater that sat there for a few weeks. They won't visit the swimming pool. They will be trained to that particular source. Yes, you may get mosquito larvae in that bird bath. So dump it out. Have two bird baths. Keep one going and keep the other one developing the OG bouquet that they like. But train them to get what they need in your yard versus going to visit other people. That minimizes it. And it always helps to deliver a little jar of honey at Thanksgiving or Christmas with a thank you note for the plants that they've planted in their yards that will feed your bees. I would think there's somewhat of a fear. You're talking about bees around the swimming pool or on the sidewalk. There is a fear of bees out there. Yeah. You've just given us a good example of delivering some honey and some other things. Are there other fears that we should be concerned of? They may be a, how do you know that you have the temperament to, to be a beekeeper? That's a really good question. We, we automatically, when, we start, when we're talking about beekeeping in our classes, we automatically acknowledge that you're going to get stung. It's not if you're going to get stung. It's when you're going to get stung. And we even joke about it. We want to see who's, who's getting the first sting of the season. And we do that because we want people to understand that that is part of beekeeping. Now, I've been doing this for 15 years, and I have no fear. So I don't put off the fear pheromone when I'm working with bees. So I can work them without gloves. Now, I always keep a veil on. The bee sees your nose and your mouth open as a black void, and that's a threat to them. So you want to keep a veil on. But if you are calm and you do go slowly, you can work with bees and never get stung. We let people understand that they've got to get over that fear. One of the ways you can do that is find a beekeeper who's willing to take you to their apiary, suit you up in proper safety gear, and let you look at the bees up close. You've got this person that looks like an EPA inspector, right, with a face suit on and the gloves that are too big for them because they've not borrowed good gloves. They've got a bee sitting on their finger, and they're going, look. That's when I know there's hope for that person because they've forgotten 
that little creature can hurt them with a sting, now they're fascinated by what they're doing. Taking somebody out to an apiary is really critical. We actually have a teaching apiary here that's tied to, to our local bee club, and we do that once a month. And in between those sessions, we also have to do some maintenance. And so we'll take people out as well when we do maintenance to get that connection. Let them get become fascinated by the bees and what they're doing and forget that there's this little threat. Because once they get over that fear, they don't put out that ceremony anymore and the bees don't pay attention to what they're doing. We also tell people, you've got to read your bees. If you take the cover off your hive, and your bees are looking up at you, just put that cover right back down there and go back some other time. Now, when you take the cover off and the bees are just doing their business or running back and forth on the frame, not paying any attention to what you're doing, then that's a good time to go ahead and inspect your bees. So you've got to learn to read your bees. You need to understand their mood. If it's a rainy day, not a good day to go out and, check and open up the hive. If it's windy, that's probably not a good day as well. But if it's sunny, warm, 70 degrees or warmer, no, the bees are probably going to be happy out checking out flowers and not paying any attention to what you're doing. They also recognize their beekeeper. I can go visit my bees, maybe take the lid off to see what's happening at the top of the hive and not have a problem. If you were come to, come to visit, you would have that spacesuit on because you're new. So they are familiar with me, but they're not familiar with you. And so they'll pay attention to you. We've joked in our club about who wants to be the decoy. A lot of the wives of our beekeepers will say, they're the decoys. They go out there and help their husbands, but the bees pay attention to them more than they do the husband. They're new. The bees don't know them. So they do really do serve a decoy function, even though it's a funny thing to describe themselves as. How much time does it take to tend to your bees? when you start, we talk about the honeymoon year, which is your first year of beekeeping, because you're starting usually halfway into the year. Around here, you pick up your bees in May, June. Then you have that half a year with your bees. The colony's small. It's not defensive because it's not established itself yet. We tell our beginning beekeepers, go pull a chair up. Make sure you have an area close to where you're putting your hives to observe your bees. After a while, as you get to know what's the right thing and what's the wrong thing that's happening in your hives, you can read what's happening just by observing the behavior of your bees. But you need to spend some time doing that. A lot of beekeepers do that. They don't have any problems. And they think they've got the beekeeping world solved, right? They're going to take on the second year. They're going to be fine. The second year is completely different than your first year because not only do you have your bees now for the whole year, the bees have established themselves. They know that this hive is their home. They're going to be defensive. They're increasing their numbers, right, because they're bringing in pollen. The queen is laying. You want more bees. depends on why you're having bees, what you do with the bees. But the bees themselves are taking care of business by increasing numbers. The more numbers that they have, the more defensive they become of their hive. Their needs are different. They need more flowers. They need more water. As you become more mature with your hives, the things that you need to do from year to year are different. It's a long way to say to you, if you have one hive for your first year, maybe an hour a week, two hours a week, not counting when you go into an inspection. But by the second year, you're going to spend more time with your bees, especially in the springtime when you're observing 
what's happening, making sure that they are increasing in number, that they are getting their food, they are collecting nectar and storing it for winter food. The more colonies you have and you start multiplying that time, it could take you 10 hours a week, depending on how many hives you have. We say start with two, because if something happens to one hive, you can borrow from that to shore up the one that's weaker. It also helps you in observation. You'll see one colony doing something, the other colony is not doing that. You start observing the differences between your behavior, because the colonies are different, like cats, they have different personalities. Depending on why you're keeping your colony, I keep my colonies for pollination. Some people keep colonies because they want the honey. Some people keep colonies because they want to sell bees. Your time will also be different depending on why you keep the colonies. You'll need more bees if you want honey and you want to sell bees. If you want it for pollination, yes, you want more bees, but you're not driving your colonies for the numbers as much. You want the numbers that are healthy for your colony and the number of plants you have in your garden, but you're not selling bees. The answer to most beekeeping questions is it depends. That was a long way of saying that to you. I'm listening to you talk about the beehives and the different reasons that you would have uh, a colony of bees. What happens if the bees fill up the hive and you're not harvesting the honey? I don't know how much honey you need to harvest and how much you need to leave. What happens if a hive gets full and you're not harvesting it? So they swarm just like they would in nature. If they're in a tree cavity, bee trees is what people refer to them as, and they run out of room, they swarm. And that's nature's way of maintaining their own reproduction. Once the queen is established in a colony, she stays there for the rest of her life unless they're swarming. And the bees put her on a diet for two to three weeks so that she can fly again. They prepare themselves. They stop producing wax. They load up on honey and they take off. And if you've ever seen a swarm, it's fascinating to watch. It's like a little tornado. The bees are leaving together with their queen. They don't fly very far because she can't fly very far, but they swarm. And it happens to beekeepers as well as in nature. And so as beekeepers, we have to understand that the bottom of the hive, this is the bees' home, the flat, the first three boxes, some, depending on the size of the box, but basically the first three boxes are their home. That's their nursery. That's where the queen lays her eggs. That's where they store their honey. And then as they run out of room there, they keep moving up. My challenge as a beekeeper is to make sure that I give them room. The tendency is to just put a box on top and call it good. That's not room to them. To a bee, the room is in their home, right, in where they have their brood. I have to put a, an extra space on top of the brood area. And then I have to go through the frames and make sure that the queen has room to lay. It's when she runs out of room to lay that triggers the bees to get into the swarming preparation. I have to make sure that the queen knows that there's extra frames in there that they have to pull the wax on and then she can lay in. It's a juggling act. A lot of beekeepers struggle with that, with the concept of bee space. Bee space is three-eighths of an inch between frames. If you have larger space than that, the bees will fill it up with something. But bee space also over the brood nest. So you're right. You have to keep track of that. It can happen very quickly in the springtime when you've got flowers blooming, they're bringing in the nectar, they're bringing in pollen to feed bees, the nurse bees who would then feed the baby bees. 
you have to inspect every seven to ten days while the nectar's flowing because you can easily lose track of what's happening. When they swarm, does everybody leave that hive or do they leave part of the colony behind? If everything's okay, they will have grown a new queen, the daughter of the old queen. She will be left behind with maybe a half to two-thirds of the colony, and a third of the colony and the old queen will leave. If the old queen is somehow damaged, she can't fly, or something's happened to her leg or whatever, she'll remain behind and the new queen will leave. The issue with the queens is once they mate with 15, 20 drones and return to the hive, and then they stay in the hive, and their job for the rest of their life is to, to lay eggs, 2,000 eggs a day. And as they run out of sperm, the colony knows something's happened to her. You smashed her inadvertently when you were doing inspection or whatever. The colony knows, and as long as they have an egg between one to three days old, they can grow a new queen. As they run out of space, the colony, in a very democratic process, will decide that they need a new queen. They'll start growing a new queen on their own. So that whole process is fascinating to watch. You start seeing the queen cell, you know how many days, we call it BMAT, you know how many days it takes for that queen cell to close, and you just subtract the days, and you keep track of it that way. But the colony itself knows what's best. I try not to mess with mine. If I see them building a queen cell, especially where it's on a frame, at the end of the foundation of a frame, that's usually a swarm cell. If it's in the middle of the frame or at the end of wherever the foundation is on a frame, that's what we call a supersedure cell. They're replacing the queen. I don't mess with the supersedure cells because I may not know what's wrong with the queen, but they obviously know or want a new queen. So I just let that one go. But I do watch the swarm cells at the bottom because every time they have a queen that he closes, she takes part of the colony out. She may have four swarms, so four new colonies, but you may have no bees left behind in your hive. You want to manage that. You also don't want that swarm hanging from your neighbor's apple tree. That can get people excited. Do they know where they're going when they start swarming? It's fascinating. Once they leave, the swarm is hanging from a tree. Scout bees go out and start looking for possible new locations. At the end of the day, they come back. They communicate what they found through dancing. They communicate the distance, they communicate location, and they vote on whether they found their home or not. They've got about five days where they can survive on the honey that they've ingested before they left. They don't find it. Next day, the scout bees go out again, and they look for a location. We've had beekeepers who've had empty hives. I'm one of them. And a swarm found it. One day, my contractor was walking by where I keep my equipment. He said, Charlotte, is there a colony out there? Because he's gotten to know the bees really well. I said, no, they're just cleaning it out. Bees will find leftover honey that may be in an abandoned hive and go clean it out. Then I went down a couple of days later to look, and I'm thinking, huh, they've got departures and, and incoming bees like an airport. I'm thinking, I better look inside. A swarm had moved in. The funniest story I ever heard was a gentleman who has empty hive boxes in the back of his truck. And he was going to visit one of his apiaries with that equipment and decided to go fishing instead. Here he is driving down the highway, and he looks in the rearview mirror, and there's a swarm following his boxes. They're trying to move in, but he's going too fast. So he did pull over, and the colony moved right in. They do look for their locations. The other side of that is sometimes when you put them in the box and you feed them and you think they're all settled in, they don't like it. 
their scout bees have located a better place and they voted on it, you have moved them so they get lost when they go out because they haven't triangulated their new spot. So you have to be careful with that. If you really want them to stay, you give them a frame of open brood. So the nurse bees that have been traveling in that swarm say, oh my, we can't go anywhere because we've got babies to take care of. That tends to ground the colony in that hive when you house them. But swarming is fascinating. There are lots of books out there about the whole process. Tom Seeley out of New York, he's retired now from Cornell, has a great book. It's called The Honeybee Democracy. It's a book about the studies that he made about swarming and how the bees make the decisions. All this is very fascinating. You've talked about one of your books or two of your books, and you've got another book coming on that you're going to release in when, June? I hope in June, yes. It's about bees need flowers. That's the title of it. It's a third book in a series of reference books that I'm writing because these books are not available. Lots of great beekeeping books, but I wanted the books that I needed for what I was doing in beekeeping here. A Beekeeper's Diary is that beginning beekeeping book that I would like to have had when I started. It gives you the checklist of things. I think there's 14 decisions you have to make on where you place your hive. We also have pest and disease section, which describes the pests and diseases. It tells you your options for managing it and then how to prevent it, things that I had not found when I was starting. Then our State Beekeeping Association had asked me to write a book on starting a bee club. Because, yes, you're a beekeeper and you're taking care of your bees, but your success is going to depend on what you hear from other beekeepers and what they're seeing in their hives. And you're comparing what their struggles are. You want to have a bee club. does not have to be a big group of people. But beekeepers who come together to help share their information, help to share their experiences. Bee Club Basics is that. I've started 12 nonprofits in my lifetime. I know the struggle, if you've never done that, to find your EIN and to find your bylaws and find your charter. And there's samples of that, all of those, as well as checklists in Bee Club Basics. Bees Need Flowers is going to have that same approach. It's going to have a number of checklists for on your soil, how to determine what kind of soil you have, your options for testing your soil, your options for determining what's growing in your garden. A lot of garden books, for example, start out with an empty square, grid, and say, okay, design your garden on this grid. Mine will start out with, okay, here's your grid. Put in what's already growing in your garden, not what you want to put in. Start out with what's already there. Determine if that's going to help your bees, and then decide where you're going to go with your garden design and what you're going to plant. It's really what I lecture on a lot, but I wanted to put it in a book form because I know it's a lot of information, especially for beekeepers who don't want to be gardeners. I think of the three books will probably be the one that people will go to the most because it's the most challenging for both beekeepers and gardeners. So we're going to give away a copy of your book too, aren't we? Yes, you are. Yes, you are. What we'd like for folks to do is to go to the gardenquestionpodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. Out of the first 10 people that sign up, when your book is available, we'll pick one and you'll send them a copy, right? Not all 10, but the, we'll pick one out of those 10 that sign up for the newsletter, thegardenquestion.com. It's where you want to go sign up for a chance to win a copy of your new book. Anything else that we need to talk about on bees and gardening? I want to talk about how do you learn to keep bees because I'm part of the Great Plains Master Beekeeping Program out of the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. I'm the governing chair of the advisory group that helps with that program. 
we've learned over the years that yes, you can go to a class and learn to keep bees, but there are places where people are homesteading or they're going out in rural parts of the country, they can't get to a club that sponsors a class, for example. This is a good time of year to look for a beekeeping class in the wintertime because that's when clubs are not as busy with bees. But if you need to be able to get the rudimentary foundation of beekeeping, you need to get it from scientifically based best management practices, which is what the Great Plains Master Beekeeping tries to teach. They have a beginning class, 20 modules online, and it has a pre-test and a post-test. And that the test is not supposed to make you embarrassed. It's supposed to measure what you're learning so that you get the foundations of beekeeping. You understand? Because you're becoming an amateur biologist when you're a beekeeper. There's also Heroes to Hives out of Michigan. Adam Ingrail does a really good job with his modules. I think the registration usually ends end of February. You have a whole year to learn from him on beekeeping. Once you finish your Heroes to Hives session, you then get funneled into Great Plains Master Beekeeping to continue your education because beekeeping is constantly changing. A lot of research is being done into bees because they're so important to our food chain. I want people to know that you can study before you get bees. We have a number of people who catch a swarm because it's catching swarms are fun or somebody donates a colony to them and they don't know what to do. That's not the best way of doing it. So educate yourself first and you can go online and do it through Great Plains Master Beekeeping. The Heroes to Hives program is for military, active duty veterans and their immediate families. Both programs are free at that level. Take class, take four classes. We had a member of our club that used to joke that he'd taken six of my classes or eight of my classes because you're learning a brand new language. You're then having to learn some scientific principles that some of us have never been exposed to. Then you're having to learn this little creature that frankly you can study, watch YouTube videos that may or may not be appropriate to your area, read a lot of books, but the minute that lid comes off and 10,000 bugs fly in your face, you forget everything. So we want you to be as prepared as you can be. Then we hold your hand in terms of taking you out to a hive and a colony and see how the bees are operating. Educate yourself before you get the bees. They're not like running chickens. They're not like cattle. They're a different challenge if you're a homesteader. They take more time. And once you have them, you're on bee time. You don't get to schedule your normal summer vacation in June because that's the time that the bees need you. So there are a lot of different things that will impact your life that you don't realize when you start. But we also want you to start with a good foundation because then if you can change things, you can try a different hive configuration, different kind of bee, but you need to have a starting point, right? You need to have a benchmark which you can measure other things that you're doing or not doing. If you start with an exotic hive of some sort or exotic bee breed, first, you may not find other people who can help you because they've not done that. And secondly, you don't know what is normal in a hive, in a colony. Start with that and then you can play with whatever else you want to do. We don't want you to fail. This beekeeping is expensive. $1,000 plus a used freezer. It can be less if people give you the high, but you don't know why they got out of beekeeping. You may have the spores of American fowl brood, which stay viable in the wood for 50 years. That's the disease where you have to burn everything and kill your bees. 
So there are a lot of factors that play into this. So we want you to be successful at it, and we want you to start off on the right foot. So the classes are applicable no matter where you're located in the world? Yes. Or is it just for Great Plains? It's focused on the Midwest. The Great Plains Master Beekeeping has eight Midwest states. If you look at the eastern side, we have a lot of clubs and master beekeeping programs that support that part of the country. Master beekeeping programs that support the West Coast. We have nothing. 26 states in the Midwest don't have anything. So the Great Plains Master Beekeeping Program is going to provide hopefully mentors by teaching people to give back as part of the program. A lot of programs are B-schools as well. We're not a B-school, although we teach people the beginning skill sets that they need for beekeeping. We're more focused on teaching the teachers. We want to make sure that people are coming out of this program and they're giving back. This is probably something controversial, but I'd like to tell people we don't need a lot of beekeepers. We need good beekeepers. We need people who are contributing back to the ecosystem and nature and helping bees be successful in providing the food that we need. Yes, it's fun to have bees, but it is an expensive hobby. Some people are doing things because they want to do them, but they're not necessarily good for the beekeeping community. I can do some things with my bees. I'm hurting the bees that are within my five-mile radius of where my hives are. We are connected, even from that perspective, although some people don't think about it that way. I'm a beekeeper. I can do whatever I want to with my bees. If you're not monitoring for rural mites and those bees are carrying those to another colony, you're impacting that other colony as well. We need to be astute about what we do or don't do and what the impacts are. What do you wish people would do differently when designing and building and growing a garden? I wish they would listen to their garden. When we buy a piece of property, whether it's a home or it's a property we want to develop as a homesteader or just a piece of property that we want to place a home on, what do we do? We come in and we bulldoze everything down, right? We bulldoze it down. We start tilling the soil because that's where the garden's going to go. I wish they would spend their first year watching their garden. If you have seasons, go through the seasons. You do have seasons in the way that nature is relating to what's on that piece of property. Pay attention to what's happening on that piece of land. Keep a diary. January, you observe this. February, you observe these things visiting. March, you saw the possum go by for the first time, whatever it is. See what's happening because that garden is somebody else's home, not just yours. There are critters that depend on whatever may be happening on that land that supports them. So find out what that is. And then think about what you could add or subtract to that piece of property. But even then, realize that what you're doing is going to impact more than just you. And that's what I think we forget in terms of garden design. What garden myth would you like to smash? Oh, garden myth. Oh, my favorite. I don't use four-letter words anyway. But my favorite word that I'm eradicating from my vocabulary right now is weed. I've done some research on my driveway because I noticed that there were these little plant starts that were springing up on my gravel driveway. And I found out that most of those that we call weeds are actually lost. And I've yet to find, even with ragweed, I've yet to find plants that didn't have some purpose at some point in their life, in our lifetime as humans. And we've forgotten them. If you think about dandelions, they were actually carried from Europe to North America with the European settlers in the 1600s. 
because dandelions were their apothecary, right? They made drugs out of dandelions. They also brought what we call orange daylilies. People call ditch lilies around here. That was a food source. You can eat the whole plant. Even if you visit England now, I was spent some time there seven years ago working in Southampton. They had these little kitchen gardens behind their homes, which are little postage stamp gardens, and they have daylilies there because they're edible. They call them four bands asparagus, the stems. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to rethink the labels we place on things. We know invasives, but what is an invasive? You ask me what was a, what, what's called a, considered a native plant. I'm on a campaign to get rid of the word weed <laughs> because that's an easy, convenient way to say, I don't want that plant. It's a bad plant. Ergo, I can remove it. You can remove the plant if you want to, but you don't have to put a label on it, right? If you're going to label it correctly, it's an herb. Hmm. And it has some properties that it will offer to your garden if you're willing to stop enough, long enough to find out what it is. What's your earliest garden memory? Probably poinsettia trees in Mexico City. I had to be maybe one to one and a half years old running around the backyard that we had there. I still can remember sitting on my dad's knee and looking up, seeing this canopy of red. Now, remember, I'm one year old, so that could have been just a big bush. <laughs> but they do grow in their native country, Mexico, poinsettias are trees the size of a dogwood, an understory tree. So that's my earliest memory. And I still have poinsettias in my house because of that. Living? Living poinsettias. I have one that I've kept going for four years. Wow. Does it bloom? Yes. I take it downstairs in the summer, so it gets daylight sun, and then at night it's dark. It re-blooms every year. Wow. The person I've talked with that was successful getting it to re-bloom. Does it bloom at Christmas? Yes. As long as I don't go in that room and expose it to more light. Congratulations on that. Thank you. <laughs> That's an achievement. Yeah. I think one of your earlier podcast guests mentioned that you can't get the nursery-grown poinsettias to rebloom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I looked at mine over there. I said, I guess I need to name them. It's been around for <laughs> four right. years. Yes, that's episode 139 with Dr. Jim Voss from Clemson University. We have an extensive conversation on poinsettias. He has some rather fascinating stories about poinsettias and the adventures of where that plant's been through the ages. Why did you decide to pursue horticulture and gardening? that's an interesting question. I thought it was because I enjoyed flowers. I spent 30 years working for the Forest Service as a public affairs director, so I got to be exposed to landscape designs and public involvement and all the things that a land management agency does. One Christmas, I was talking to my uncle, who was down in Louisiana, Uncle Tony, because I sent him some honey. And he said, Sherry Lou, that was my nickname growing up, of course, from Louisiana. He said, our family on my father's side were farmers going back to Hungary. We're immigrants. I'm third generation. And he said, we've always had soil under our nails. We've always had an affinity to land. Then he told me he also remembers being six and seven and being a beekeeper, checking the hives on the strawberry farms in Louisiana. I think maybe genetically I'm predisposed to be in the garden and working and growing things. Uh, three of my four siblings all have some relationship to the outdoors and gardens, and I blame it on my ancestors. <laughs> Tell us a funny garden story. Oh, I still chuckle when I think about this. 15, 20 years ago, I was a rehabilitator for a local conservation 
agents. People would bring in baby rabbits and birds in particular, but the rabbits are the feature of this story. Wild rabbits do not do well in captivity, so they would bring me a rabbit that their cat caught or they caught in a blade of a lawnmower. I would doctor it up and release it. Up the hill from where I live, there was a gentleman whose name was McGregor, Beatrix Potter, McGregor, Mr. McGregor of the Cabbage Patch. He lost his wife, and I was helping him reconnect with her through her garden, frankly. He told me that spring that he really wanted to put in some tomatoes and some lettuce. I went up the hill, scoped out what he had. We got the soil, gave him some tomato plants. I would see him running around the neighborhood in his little golf cart. We'd stop. He'd tell me how things were going. One day he comes by, maybe mid-summer, and he said to me, would I like to come up and see his tomato plants? He never offered that before, so I thought something must be going on. So I walk up the hill, and the poor tomato plants look terrible. You know, Leaves were missing. Something had cut it off the top. He said, do rabbits like tomato tomato plants? I said, yes. I said, obviously, they like the lettuce. He said, for some reason, I seem to have a lot of rabbits in the garden this year. I didn't have the heart to tell him. I had released 13 wild rabbits, and they apparently all made it because they were in his tomato patch. In your professional career, who has been your biggest influencer? My grandmother would send me interesting books, and she was a gardener out of Oakland. She didn't have a garden. She loved gardening. So she would send me a lot of books. Some of them were well-known books, like from Gertrude Jekyll and Ruth Stout. Then she would send me some garden picture books from the 40s and 50s, which are very different than the books that we see today. And those influenced me. But my biggest influence was my actual garden. When I finally decided to stop trying to impose my views, my needs, my wants on my garden, and started observing and then allowing the garden to shape itself. That changed how I gardened. Then when I got bees, that was the other big aha transitional moment for me. I had seen it from a perspective as part of a land management agency. I had intellectually understood what was happening in terms of pollination. But until I saw those bees flying around in my garden and approaching my flowers, that's when the emotional connection took place. When I take pictures now, if I don't have an insect on a flower, it's an incomplete photo. I want to see that butterfly, that ant, ants on peonies. I have a ton of those pictures because there is a connection between them. There's a wonderful folklore in the Ozarks about how the ants show up and help the peony buds open. I can, I love to continue that folklore. Whether it's true or not, the idea that there's a connection between those bugs and that flower is really critical. There's another one about hummingbirds. How do hummingbirds migrate across these large expanses, right, when they leave and go south for the winter and then come back? I was at a meeting with a bunch of biologists one year, they opened up the lecture to questions, and I asked, because I grew up in Brazil, and there's a nursery rhyme down there that the way hummingbirds migrate is on the back of geese. I said something to the lecturer, and I said, sometimes those folklore have basis in fact of some sort. What have you done or what have you determined how those hummingbirds that require a lot of energy to fly, 
how can they make those long treks from North America to South America? Does it happen? Is there a relationship between the hummingbirds and the geese? And of course, the scientists got upset with me with the question and said, no, that's not, that's just folklore. It's not true and whatever. And so they see pictures of hummingbirds when they're exhausted right on beaches because they've just run out of energy. And this scientist I met later back of the room, he goes, Charlotte, that's where the geese dump them. <laughs> that poor scientist, I had to work with him for years afterwards. He did not like me <laughs> because of that question. But there's some truth to that. Sometimes the things that we learn in nursery rhymes or through folklore, there's some reason why that developed and it continues. So I always like to look at those things as well and say, where did that come from? Why do we perpetuate that? If it's not truthful, then mark it as folklore. But if it is truthful, that also gives us hints of what happens to an area that we don't know about. So going back to my garden, there were things that people would tell me around here about plants that may or may not be truthful from a gardening horticulturist perspective, but it was what they did in their gardens. I started paying attention to that versus just the books that I was reading. That and my bees have changed my relationship to my garden. What is your most valuable garden mistake? Not paying attention to my soil. Early on, I would bring in soil and make little retaining walls out of rocks because the, the thing I grow the most on this hillside is rocks. <laughs> and when I started understanding that rocks become soil, I thought, oh, I'm all set there, but it will take 2,000 years for that to happen. But not paying attention to soil, not making sure it was mulched, not making sure that the moisture was there for the plants I was planting. I would just put soil down, put a plant in, water it. If I was lucky, I'd mulch it. And then I wonder why I wouldn't grow. I've developed a better relationship. I now have six composters. I bring in soil. I bring in chips from our recycling center. I let it sit for six months. I do soil testing every other year. I have lots of leaves. I leave my leaves on my garden over winter. And so I have a little bit more acidic garden than normal. So I make sure that I correct that. Uh, so that's probably my biggest mistake, was not starting out with a full understanding and appreciation of soil. What have you recently learned about horticulture or gardening? That we are probably further disconnected from basic gardening techniques than I realized. I learned that through my lectures. The one thing that amuses me in, a, in some ways and then terrifies me are when I lecture on planting for pollinators and I have master gardeners that come up afterwards and tell me, I really don't get pollination. What is pollination? a long word I understand and I know it's a little sensitive for people to talk about sex in the garden pollination is a concept that we bandy about and don't really understand in most cases we need to put away the sensitivity about the topic and just talk about what's happening between the plants and the pollinators matter of fact in France now there was a study that came out recently that pansies in Europe are now becoming self-pollinators because they don't have the bugs to pollinate them. So the flowers are actually becoming smaller, less colorful, and they're not producing as much nectar because they're now taking care of pollination themselves. They are morphing into survival by that. So let's understand what's happening and use terms that sometimes make us uncomfortable. 
I'd like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have. Ooh, murder, mayhem, and mysteries. I love going out and seeing something new growing, especially if it's still a baby plant, and try to guess what it is. Over the years, I've developed a pretty good eye that I can walk through a field and tell you what most are before you even see the flower. It always interests me to see a bird coming down and picking up a caterpillar or watching volatile caterpillars eating my grapefruit tree that I keep inside over winter and take out on my deck. They lay their eggs and all of a sudden I have all these little squiggly caterpillars that look like bird poop eating the leaves of the grapefruit tree. That's what I see in my garden. I see a lot of activity, a lot of life. What did you learn from your garden last year that you're applying this next year? I knew this lesson. My garden has tried to teach me this lesson. I have to be patient. The reason I say that is on a limestone hillside, it's a challenge for the plants themselves to establish themselves. It takes them longer. I have a flowering dogwood I planted at the front of my house so I could watch it from my living room where I have a chair and I read. Theodore took 25 years to grow more than three feet because it took him that long for his roots to get through the rock fissures so that they could get enough nourishment for him to grow. He now looks like a normal understory tree, but I was convinced I was going to have a bonsai dogwood tree for many years. I planted some purple cone flowers. I checked them last year. I didn't see anything on the top. I planted something else. Then I realized at the end of the season that they were there all along. Their roots were getting established. They didn't have enough energy to put up the growth at the top. I have to remind myself I'm not in charge, and I have to be patient. I have to give the plants a chance to root, shoot, and fruit on their own schedule. That's okay. I'm good. Bees teach me the same thing as well. I just have to be, be patient. Let them do it on their time, mine, not mine. Do you name all your plants? Oh, I name certain plants. Theodore, the dogwood. I would go out and talk to him and say, are you going to stay three feet for the rest of the season? Because I was trying to figure out what was happening. I ended up getting from the U.S. Geological Survey a, a, a topographical map of this hillside to understand. When you look at that, you go, oh, you're lucky to have anything growing. As a matter of fact, my neighbors, when I first moved in and we were getting to know each other and whatever, Mr. McGregor with his unexpected rabbit, he had a neighbor next to him, Mr. McKibben. He manicured his turf grass. No dandelion dares set foot in his yard. We would talk about what I wanted to do here. I actually planted daffodils on the site before we even broke ground for the house. I'm, I'm plant flowers. I want a cutting garden. I want to have things growing. And they laugh at me. They said, nothing's going to grow on that hillside. Yes, I've proven them wrong, but it also takes a lot longer. So when a tree like Theodore makes it, or my semi-dwarf Bartlett pear tree, Peter, makes it, and I have things, my girls, my bees are named after women. I celebrate with a name because they've become very much a part of my family. They take them 25 years to grow or 30 years in the case of the pear tree. What plant are you in love with this week? Oh, probably the Phaleopsis, my moth orchids. I was raised in Brazil and I remember having lovely orchids hanging off tree trunks and tree limbs. We actually water them with a the hose and was not very successful growing them inside my house or here over the years. But when I discovered moth orchids, 
I buy them on sale after they bloomed because I like bringing them back to bloom. And I have an area down in my basement where they seem to love the conditions. It's cooler in the summertime. It's warmer in the winter. And I think I've got half a dozen of them now with buds. I'm waiting for them to bloom. Is there anything else I should have asked you? I just want to encourage people to take a walk. Next day you can do this, even in the wintertime. Go outside and take a walk in your garden. Observe what's happening in your garden. I know it's winter here. We just came through an ice storm. Birds are back at the feeder. I can tell when a storm's coming in by watching the birds at the feeder, who's feeding and when. Start looking for things that are happening in your garden. Train your eye to see something more than static because I think some of us want that peaceful, calm garden. Your garden is not that. Start embracing the activity that's happening. Tell a story. Tell us yourself the story about what you saw in your garden when you took a walk. It may take a few walks before you do that, but you'll start seeing our things are happening. Daffodil bulbs are trying, starting to poke out of the ground. My Lenten roses are starting to bloom. There are things going on in the garden. Embrace that because that's what makes it a fascinating place as far as I'm concerned. It's not just the plants that are growing, but the relationship of the plants with the other things in the garden, including you and me. Charlotte, tell us how people may connect with you. They can find me at my author website, charlotteeckerwiggins.com, at my custom gift business, Bluebird Garden. They can also find me on TikTok and Instagram, where they can see pictures of my bees and my garden. This has been episode 147, Resolving the Beekeepers and Gardener's Dilemma with Charlotte Ecker-Wiggins. Thank you, Charlotte. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.